Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. I'm very excited to introduce everybody to Dr. Valerie Earnshaw, who is an assistant professor at the University of Delaware in Education and Human Development and has her very own Earnshaw Lab, where she studies stigma and HIV, substance use, bullying, among many other things. Valerie, I was trying to remember when I first met you, and I actually can't even remember. I feel like I've known you forever. I've got this. Okay. <laughs> I want you to picture 20... Okay. I don't know the year. It was either 2012 or 2013. Your hint is Pacific Ocean and like Lays. Oh, Hawaii. Hawaii. So I'm a huge admirer of your work. I've been for a long time. And so I invited you to come to Hawaii for an APA symposium. Yes. My favorite part about that trip was I think after we gave our talks, we were like standing in the ocean and chatting Mm -hmm. and you had this like you know, paper idea. You wanted to test out the scale. We were chatting about it and we were like, let's go do the scale thing together. And so anyway, that remains like my favorite origin story for a paper. That's amazing. I think we need to find another tropical destination to meet at again soon. Oh my gosh, 100%. Yes. So I want to ask you, and I know you probably thought about this many times. If I'm in an elevator with you, say we're going up five or six flights, I don't know if you say flights or stairs. Uh, How do you describe your stigma research to somebody in an elevator? I usually go with that I study uh, the association between stigma and health inequities, mostly in the context of HIV and substance use disorders. So I guess that only gets me from like, you know, the first floor to the second or third floor. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm prepared for short building. <laughs> so if, if, you know, what if the elevator was a little stalled? Would you, what would you add that? Um, I might talk about more generally, you know, that I study stigma across the lifespan. So I both am interested in how, you know, young people experience stigma because I think that stigma is particularly harmful for younger people. And I'm interested all the way up to adults. I might expand by talking about I'm interested in family context, which is good now that I'm in a department of human development and family sciences, because a lot of the stigma that I've studied has unfold with unfolds within family context. And also people can be, again, like particularly harmed by stigma in family, in family contexts. And then I might also talk about that I've, you know, 
have this persisting interest, probably same as you from our HIV research and just like disease stigma, <laughs> you know, and particularly in the midst of COVID as we are now, I mean, just I'm interested in how people react to disease and why it is that we stigmatize disease and how, um, even though that's like an evolved thing, we were kind of evolved, I think in some ways, or some, some theorists would argue that we're evolved to stigmatize people with disease ultimately ends up really backfiring, <laughs> like so many things that we're evolved to do. And it ends up being kind of harmful and bad for public health. So I was reading one of your articles today, actually, on H1N1 stigma. And I was like, this woman has studied every kind of possible stigma I can imagine. It was amazing. That was like round one of a disease hits. And I'm like, should I study it? No, I'm not going to do it. Yes, I am. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. No, I'm not. And then, you know, you eventually jump in. <laughs> it was great and super relevant to COVID. Well, it was a grad school study, so I feel like it's terrible. So, but that's nice of you to say. <laughs> I have another somewhat related question. If I was to show up at your house right now with a time machine, with space for two people, and ask you to bring me back to the time and place where you started thinking, I want to study stigma, where would we go? We, okay, so we would go back to grad school. So what's really funny about grad school is that I got in and I had a conversation with my fantastic and super smart uh, mentor, Diane Quinn, who's like a major, you know, fantastic stigma, stigma researcher. And on one of the first weeks, she's like, okay, you know, I have these two kind of projects that I'm thinking about workshopping. One is self-objectification and one is stigma. And I was like, I'm a real strong <laughs> gender, like researcher. So I'm going to do self-objectification. So I spent the first two years of grad school studying self-objectification theory. And I was, A, I think I was terrible at it. And B, like it just... You know how I think with science, sometimes you click with a subject and it like really makes sense to you and you get it and you're, you feel like, okay, this is, this is my area or this can be my niche. And self-objectification was just not clicking. I don't know if it was just nothing clicks well for a first year grad student. I don't even know what it is. What is, oh, okay. what is yeah. it even? So it actually is very stigma relevant. Self-objectification is this um, idea that some people... And mostly, you know, this is a, a theory mostly focusing on women that uh, rather than like thinking about myself from the first person perspective. So for me, like I just went on a run. So my legs are tired or I ate way too much chili when I got back from a run. So I'm full or I feel happy because I'm talking to Carmen and I adore her. So instead of thinking about yourself, like from the first person perspective, you're thinking more about how you look from the outside. So I might think like, oh, this hair, not best hair day, or like, ah. I went on a run, I'm still, you know, whatever pounds over, I want to be, or, you know, whatever. Ah. So like, it's really taking you from having this, like, this experience where you're um, in tune with yourself and your thoughts to just kind of focusing on how you look from the outside. And it's both, um, it's both something that just it can be a personality thing. Some people experience that overall more than others. And then there's also like situations that pull people into that. Like the classic psych manipulation is to 
bring people into the psych lab and put them in a bathing suit and then they'll... <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. That would definitely stress me out. Totally, right? So like I'm doing these studies or I'm like trying to get people to self-objectify in a lab and I'm a first and second year grad student and like it's just, it was terrible. Like we think that stigma research is hard. (laughs) Like (laughs) try self-objectification research. So I did that for- So you switched and then- then I switched. So I, um, so Seth Kalichman had a training program for folks to kind of take them from doing- more basic social psych research and do HIV research. And I applied to that. I got into that. And it was, it was fantastic. I mean, I think what was happening in my life at that time was that I, I was also getting sick. So I was diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease when I was in grad school around that time. It was a stress-related chronic illness that coincided with, you know, comps. <laughs> which is a big exam in your PhD program. And I just remember like really thinking about my own health and how stress was related to my own health. And I I was at this moment where I was really afraid of that I was really sick and thinking about what it meant, you know, for people who are living with HIV that you know, if there are these things that are happening in their environment, if there's stigma in the world that is stressful or affects them in different ways, how that could threaten their health. And I just, it really made me angry. (laughs) You know, it's just, and it, so that was the moment, I think that was a big moment for me being like, okay, I think that um, I'm going to shift gears and try to figure this out and think about this some more. That's amazing. What I find really interesting about your work, well, there's many things I find interesting, is that you're really open to different health issues. You know, I've seen you look at so many different things from Ebola to HIV and substance use, and some of them are more visible and others, you know, like HIV or some of the other things might not be be visible. So it's interesting to hear your history of of coming there. Yeah, definitely. Um, So one of the nice things about my training with Diane Quinn was she, she studies concealable stigmatized identities and she really focuses on like common processes across different stigmatized identities. Um, And so, so that would, that definitely left a mark for me in thinking that you know, looking at commonalities across different ways that people experience stigma, different ways that stigma is perpetuated. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing how, (laughs) how the experiences are similar, you know, like, I feel like you and I could, you know, come up with a stick, like if there's, well, there is a new disease, I was going to say, if there's a new disease today, we could could come up with a stigma scale for it because the experiences look so Mm -hmm. familiar and look um, really similar across different diseases. I mean, there's like little ways in which they're nuanced, but. Maybe um, we need to have a virtual meeting with our backgrounds looking like a tropical beach. There we go. While we're <laughs> while we're in lockdown, <laughs> think yeah. about doing a COVID nineteen stigma scale. I think totally. that's a great idea. Yeah, that's really <laughs> the best way for us to collaborate. <laughs> and then, and then <laughs> when when the travel bans are lifted. Um, so one last question I want to ask you before I get into some deeper stigma questions is really related to this. If you could go on vacation anywhere and do anything for fun, 
that, you know, not work related, although, you know, for us, we could build in work, but just if you could just go somewhere for pure joy and pleasure and fun, where would you go and what would you do? Sad news bears, just canceled a vacation with my mom. <laughs> Actually, it's going to be a mom's trip. It was going to be me, my husband, and both of our moms, and we were going to go to Alaska. So I don't know what nice. it is lately that I'm just very much into like being in the woods with mountains, <laughs> like where it's quiet. I'm very much like I can, I am very much a beach person. Like I would love to go. We should definitely have this writing retreat and put it back in Hawaii, but um Something about, you know, being in nature, being, you know, around mountains right now feels like very calming and peaceful. And so I think that I would, um, I would maybe enact this mom's trip if I could go anywhere. <laughs> and we reschedule it. I, yeah. I love the North. I, you know, I work up, up there and it's so, so amazing. Okay. So the first question I really want to ask you about stigma is who cares? Why, why should people care? What's the big deal? There's all these other urgent things going on in the world. I love this question because it feels like really funny to explain to Carmen Logie why she should care about stigma. <laughs> but I well, got an answer for you. Because I really think that everybody is going to give a different answer. Answer, or maybe they won't. And then that will also be interesting, you know? Totally, yeah. Okay, so I was thinking about this, and I, I'm going to go with people should care about stigma because odds are people are going to experience stigma at some point in their life. It's just something that most of us are going to deal with. So, like, think about how small the population is of, like, it feels like they're huge normas because they're in power, they're, in, they're on TV all the time. It's mostly the voices we hear. But what is the population of like white men, so white men who are like of a, you know, medium to upper socioeconomic status, mm-hmm. be wealthy, well off, who are healthy, right? And that who aren't, who, I don't know what, at what age we want to start applying stigma, but at what age people start becoming devalued, but like you've got to be below a certain age. Let's just Mm -hmm. go like 60s something. So like that sliver of the population is not huge. So Mm -hmm. most of us are living with a stigma. And then even if you are one of these like white men unicorns who are like well off economically and, you know, healthy today, like tomorrow you may not be. Like you could get COVID or you could, you know, have an accident and lose a leg and, or something. So like just, I, you know, maybe people should care because most of us are going to like flip into this category at some point in our lives and then, uh, then you're going to have to deal with it. So I that's think- a great answer. I think that's <laughs> a wonderful answer. I think that like the, the, uh, <laughs> the biggest trick of like patriarchy is that, end of like stigma is that we don't realize like how totally we can how totally connected we are in being devalued (laughs) together right and that I guess you know speaking to the brilliance of your work um and other people like Lisa Rosenthal's I mean that's the brilliance and the promise of like intersectionality right like if we all just realized how totally stigmatized we are all together we would just like take over the world (laughs) and how fragile we are in some ways to holding on to identities 
because of that, right, you, the shifting vulnerabilities as we age, as we could possibly get sick, as, you know, our family members or our partners could get sick. Yeah, like totally. That. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, thank you. My second question is, and I know this is going to be a tricky question for you because you actually do so much different kinds of stigma research, but can you give the audience and these listeners some examples of what does stigma really look like? What do we mean? And it could be from a range, maybe you want to give a few examples because you, tr- you study so many different kinds of stigma. Yeah. So like, Buckle up, Carmen. My seat belt is fastened. (laughs) Okay, so I was just, I've been writing about substance use stigma. And um, I'm also doing a project right now where we're talking to people who are um, in recovery from opioid use disorders. And so they're in treatment and they're they're mostly receiving methadone. to help, you know, as a medication to help them um, recover from their opioid use disorders. So we talk a lot to people who are about their experiences of stigma. And and in this last study, what we did was we asked people who were thinking about telling someone for the first time that they were, um, that they are in recovery and, um, or possibly that they're on methadone Um, we asked them to come and tell us about how they thought it was going to go and then come back after they had the conversation and tell us about how it went. And so we got lots of really, uh, we got a couple good, like nice social support (laughs) stories, but we also got a lot of stigmatizing, you know, um, experiences. So something that people who are in recovery often talk about kind of going back to this idea of families is they talk a lot about rejection from, from family members when they find out that they have an opioid use disorder or that they're in recovery from an opioid use disorder. So rejection, sometimes that looks like, you know, like not picking up the phone when people call or not being like allowed into the house. Um, wow. Yeah. So And that can be really upsetting. We had one person in one study tell us that like family members are the main people that hurt you, which I think speaks to both that family members can hurt you most frequently because there's often like a lot of family members. And also that when it comes from a family member, it can be like worse. And Mm -hmm. in having these conversations about disclosure, so many people were disclosing to a family member. Oftentimes it was like a parent. And um, they were really, really worried about how it was going to go. We also talk to people a lot about their experiences in workplace settings. So um, we... So, so sometimes when people at work find out all of a sudden they're like, they don't want them to be in charge of like the cash register or something like that. Or they're, um, they're kind of like, uh, hovering or like looking over them more. If we think about it in an, a little bit of an intersectional way, sometimes women who are in recovery will say that like people will assume that they've done like sex work or something like that in the past and that maybe they'd be open to that in the future. So they make kind of assumptions about their sexuality. Um, in healthcare settings, we see that people talk about doctors thinking that they're, it's called pill shopping, so that they're coming in saying that they have pain that they don't, 
that they can get um, pain prescriptions. Um, there was this one, this actually was a story that came from a, a mother uh, that we, who we interviewed and she said um, her daughter was in recovery and her daughter had an overdose. They took her into the ER and rather than, you know, sending the daughter home with like, here's your plan for next steps and um, here's how you should like follow up with a specialist. They just sent the daughter home with this like letter that said, drugs will kill you and um, you need to stop doing that now. So can you imagine like if someone came in like having a heart attack and we sent them home with like a letter like, not exercising is going to kill you. And so maybe you should figure that out by your, you know, yourself or wow. something like that. Or like your diet's going to kill you. Go figure that out. So the mom was, you know, mortified about this. So it can look like a lot of different things and that, we you know, of people experiencing it from others. It can also look like internalized stigma. So people feeling bad about themselves, people with substance use disorders. Um, some people have done research looking at experiences of shame and they see that um, folks in recovery from substance use disorder have higher levels of shame than folks who don't have substance use disorders. And then if we think kind of like more generally, we have the whole war on drugs, <laughs> which is a, you know, example of structural stigma because that's really treating people with a medical disease with a substance use disorder as, as criminals, as opposed to, um, you know, people with health, health related problems. That's all fascinating. I was in the fall at uh, Hopkins doing this Fulbright Mm -hmm. chair and they had this enrichment program on the opioid epidemic in Kentucky. So I went to Lexington, Kentucky to learn about it and to prepare. I read this book called In Pain. Okay. It is really great. It's by a Hopkins prof. I met him. Yeah, he was yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So he's an ethicist, right? Yes. And it, are, yeah. Okay. It was so brilliant just reading the book because you could see that even somebody who is really educated with a very prestigious job, the stigma around and the lack of support on opioid uh, dependency was just really widespread. And then when, when I went to Kentucky, there were more people sharing their lived experiences and how this may particularly impact, say, women losing access to custody for the children and things. Yes. Yeah, that comes up a lot. People talking about, especially, you know, substance use disorders are often like diseases of like teenagehood and 20s, which is the same time people are having babies <laughs> often, sometimes often. Yeah. And so that, that this idea of people taking my children away or not trusting me, even though I've been, you know, in recovery for a long time comes up a lot as well. Yeah. Thank you for those very clear examples. The next question I want to ask you, which is directly related, is what can we do about it? How can we as a society reduce stigma, whether it's regarding substance use or any other kinds of stigma? Yeah. So I usually have this like little spiel that I've been giving lately about like there's a toolbox and there's all these evidence-based tools and like we need to use them in longitudinal ways. But let, I thought let's put that to the toolbox conversation to the side because I thought what would be really fun to talk to you about is 
art. I feel like maybe art is the solution. (laughs) So like, you know, I always think it's like sort of funny to get these questions. Like, I don't know if you feel like this as a scientist, like about solving stigma because it's like activism and art are the ways to over, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. overthrows power structures, right? And I don't know if we're, maybe we are in the business of like engineering social movements, but also. <laughs> I was accused of that in some hate mail I received a few you weeks were? ago. Yeah. I was trying to engineer social change. Yeah, I know. But like, you're like, yes, that's what I'm applying for funding for. Also, I've also gotten some trolling lately and I'm like, does this mean we're leveling up? I don't know, in our career. I wasn't sure if it was that or COVID because it happened uh, twice in the past three months. I'm not sure if COVID is bringing out a lot more negativity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. But I like your perspective on it better. Yeah. I think all of my trolls <laughs> are like, you know, retired white men who are like, be quiet, little girl. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. But so for the art thing, so, you know, if you think about one of the antidotes to stigma being humanizing people and valuing people. I think art is like actually a really great way to do that. Art is a way that we learn about people who are different from ourselves. It's a way that we learn about people's like stories and it kind of like, I think art works both ways. So it's, it's, we can use art for prejudice, you know, reduction to learn about others. But I think that there's something about like making art too, that, that values your, yourself, you know, that can kind of like fight away the shame or fight away the internalized stigma. So what I'm doing, what I'm currently doing, and this is super excited about, um, is collaborating with like a, a National Geographic Explorer, the very amazing Jonathan Cox. He's at the University of Delaware, and we're going to do a project um, in collaboration with our colleagues in Malaysia doing photo voice with nice. folks that are, yeah, at risk of HIV and living with HIV. So we're going to, you know, give folks um, cameras or if they have their cameras, great, and do like a little photography workshop. And then folks will go out into the world and take photos of things that matter to them. And then they come back together and they weave the photos into like a story. And then what we're going to do, and they put like a narrative to it. And then we're going to take the photo voice presentations and show them to clinicians as part of like a bigger stigma reduction intervention. And we'll, you know, fingers crossed that it will work. But I know that you've, you've done a lot of storytelling. Like, I, you know, I was just kind of flipping through when I decided my answer was going to be art. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I think it's amazing. I think yeah. photo voice is amazing. Um, we did this Transcending Love project, which is amazing because you're right. The people who are making it, depending on what the guidance is, can really have an opportunity to reflect and create. And then that product could then be taken and used to educate and build empathy. So I think it's exciting. I can't wait to see the photos. Yeah. And I feel like the work that you do with theater Right. Because you, yeah. So I'm not super familiar about that, but when we um, were working on this chapter recently, you were adding some stuff. So I'm super curious about that. Yeah. Well, we did this participatory theater where we collected a lot of qualitative data with LGBTQ folks in Eswatini and Lesotho, and then worked with theater groups and the LGBTQ groups to make 
little skits. And then we enacted, we hired a theater troupe to enact these skits and they would uh, show an, an episode of stigma and then with no solution. And then we'd do it again and kind of pause it this critical moment where people could come and be the stigma hero and do a better answer. And then we pulled people from the audience and that was really amazing. I mean, part of the challenge is, yeah, I mean, not like we need to talk about it on this podcast, but the part of the challenge is how do we make this bigger because it's so labor intensive when we hire a theater troupe who are drumming and dancing and, you know, like it, it was incredible. And then just yeah. thinking maybe about videos or yeah, just, just thinking about how to, how to bottle that up and share it with more people. And, and I think the photo voice is very exciting because everybody in a lot of places in the world have cell phones too. So it's, so that's an even more accessible way for anybody who's listening, who wants to just think about photo voice, even if you don't have a budget for cameras, yeah. a lot of cell phones have cameras and have videos on them. So yeah, yeah. Can- yeah. And I think it, yeah, it's, it feels scalable. <laughs> like you could, yeah, that they could go different places, but I think, um, What's really interesting to me about like the the two those two things like you know leveraging theater or leveraging photo voice is like this it's really like storytelling right and humans are such storytellers mm-hmm. um, there was also a project I'm sure you saw it as well where they did like a radio program featuring people living with HIV and they noticed mm-hmm. that or they found that when they rolled this radio program out that stigma in the community or it was really prejudiced. So, you know, these kind of um, negative feelings that people were, were having towards folks living with HIV, that that went down in the community. And so there's really, I, I think that there's something to leveraging storytelling in, in any way that we can do it <laughs> to change, you know, to kind of like change people's hearts about other people. And you know, if I think about that, like with my researcher hat on, that makes, it makes me think about, you know, probably like empathy and perspective taking are kind of like the, the things that we're changing, like along the path to changing stigma. But yeah, I just, I've lately, I've been thinking a lot about the role of like, you know, art and activism. And then I keep thinking like, well, I'm a scientist, like, what am I doing? And, <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> I totally agree with you. I was asked about a year and a half ago to do a talk uh, for a clinical trials group in Canada on storytelling. And my first, so I've been doing uh, many presentations on storytelling in the last year and a half, building on that. And at first I felt, I'm a scientist. I need to be taken seriously. Why am I being asked to talk about storytelling? But I thought, oh my goodness, I've done it in so many ways in my research through video, through photo voice, through theater, through you know this arts-based work with transcending love. So that's I've been sort of doing this storytelling talk. I just did it in Sweden last month. Oh, nice! And just the how stories are have so many different possibilities and purposes of of deepening people's connection with somebody and, and with showing our shared humanity. It's, totally. it's amazing that you brought yeah. that up. Well, even like, you know, thinking back to um, the book that you mentioned, right. By the Hopkins professor, like that's just, that's yeah. just another story. Right. And it's, it's a total like stigma reduction tool, but it's like, it's another way of like, you know, 
he probably gets to like list it on his CV and call it like maybe like, I don't know if he claims it as like an academic production, but it's, it's art, you know, like, like writing a memoir is art. So um, yeah, it's really interesting. Thank you so much. Um, You're so brilliant and I'm really happy that you agreed to come on the show. I have a few wild card questions to ask you. Uh Oh, okay. I'm ready. What was the last great TV show or movie you watched? Oh my gosh, Sex Education. Okay, so I love that so much. It's so good. <laughs> I haven't watched a second season though. Oh, oh my gosh, Carmen. I think you need to stop what you're doing right now and go watch it because <laughs> the last episode of the second season is so phenomenal. Like it's so good. It's just um I'm going to put it out there. There's a penis forest in it. <laughs> You've got to go like watch it. It's very artistic, <laughs> but um, it's fantastic. It's yeah. When very- I started watching that, I actually couldn't stop watching the first season, which is why I haven't started the second season because I think I need a whole weekend to watch the oh whole my gosh. thing at once. You will. It just keeps leveling up. Like every episode is so good. Yeah. It's, uh, that would be, I mean, obviously I watch Tiger King with everybody else, but sex education would be. I just finished watching Shit's Creek. I don't know if you've watched Shit's Creek. Oh yeah, I've watched a couple. Yeah, did you like it? Yeah, I just finished the sixth. You get more into it, um, but the sixth season just had its finale on Tuesday, which is quite oh, sad, but it was okay. also amazing. Uh, yeah, you'll have to recover with sex education. <laughs> My second wild card question to you, what is your most used emoji? Oh, um, the crying laughing face. <laughs> the one with like the, the little like tears coming out and it's like kind of like bananas. Definitely that is the most used. That's also my most used. Oh, is it? Yes. <laughs> and finally, <clears throat> what is the best piece of advice you have ever been given? Oh, okay. So this was this. Okay. So this is from Seth Rogen. He didn't give it to me specifically, but I feel like he did. And I actually, when I heard this, (laughs) I wrote down um, on a piece of paper, be the Seth Rogen. (laughs) Because, okay. So last, um, last fall, I was working on this photo voice grant. I was, you know, writing it and I was getting lots of different, like, pieces of recommendations from different people and I felt sort of like lost in the project, you know, when there's like a lot of voices and um, I listened to this podcast with Seth Rogen. It was on, it was like the creative process or something like that. And he talked about how he works with like one creative partner and they take in all of the recommendations from everyone. And then they just kind of decide whatever it is that's best and they do it. And I, you know, I don't know if it's because I'm a woman or maybe I'm still consider myself a little like kind of junior. Like I don't often feel empowered just to be like, no, this is the right, (laughs) like, this is the right way to do it. Like, I'm the expert here. I can do this. Like, I'm actually the one writing the grant. Like, this is, this is the solution to this problem. And um, so, yeah, I listened to Seth Rogen talking about how he and his creative partner will just be like, they'll take in the ideas and then they'll just kind of make the executive decisions and they'll move on and they don't feel bad about it. And I was like, I can do that. Like, I'm the Seth Rogen. So anyway, lately when I'm, struggling with like 
a lot of different voices on a project or a paper that I'm writing or something. I just kind of sit back and I'm like, I'm this, I think I'm the Seth Rogen of this paper. I just <laughs> make some like executive decisions. But Amazing. I'm going to write that down. I also kind of started listening to podcasts just a few months ago in order to cope with Kampala's traffic because the traffic is about oh. five hours a day. Yeah. And I thought in, in Kampala, Uganda, the city, the traffic is, is so astounding. I might be there five hours total between going places. Yeah, and so I thought, yeah. I was like, oh, how can I um, make the most of this and not feel resentful of wasting my time? I could be learning. I'm going to listen to podcasts. So I started listening to the Armchair Expert. And I did listen to the Seth Rogen episode, which is so great. So now I can yeah. think about yeah. you. I'm going to write that down yeah. on my on my bulletin board and think about yeah. that. Don't explain it to anyone. They'll just be like, what does that mean? <laughs> but I think that there's like definitely, you know, this is a stigma podcast. I think there's definitely a gender component to being a woman. And, you know, I think we both are pretty okay at what we do, you know, and still feeling like I need to encourage myself to like trust my instincts on research projects and that it's okay for me to feel like, no, I think that this is actually, you know, the way to go with this project. Or this. You are the expert. You are the expert. <laughs> yeah, we, are the, we are experts. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say to listeners? Anything else? Any last words of wisdom? Um, no maybe, pressure. You've you already <laughs> said a lot of wisdom, but if you feel anything. Maybe I'll just say that along with the listers, I'm just so super psyched that you're starting this podcast. Um, I think it's going to be really super fun. Like, I don't know that the listeners all know, like, I don't know who your target audience is, what a super duper big deal stigma researcher rock star you are and just the fact that they are going to be able to like sit in and like kind of have this like fireside chat moment with you as you have these conversations with other like stigma researchers or people affected by stigma or whatever is like such a treat and I am just so here for it I'm really excited and um I can't wait for it. So thank you. I also want you to plug your new podcast. Tell us about that. Yes, this was the best because uh, Carmen emailed me and said, "Come on my podcast," and I said, "Sure, but you have to come on my podcast." So <laughs> our podcast is called um, "Sex, Drugs, and Science," and we're basically interviewing um, people who are scientists themselves, or maybe maybe use science, but work in the field of something related to sex and drugs. And we're kind of curious about um, what kind of science they do, what do they find, and how do they, how do they find it? Why do they find it? So we're all desperate for Carmen to come on, for you to come on and talk to us about all of your like really exciting science adventure stories, because I'm holding myself back from trying to ask you questions like, just how many countries were you in last year? <laughs> I'll have to think about that. Give me that in advance. I know. Um, You're going to need to come with your pass passport. <laughs> oh, can I just tell you something that everybody should hear? Because this was the first time it ever happened in January. We flew overnight to Colombia 
and we landed in Bogota, my partner and I gave them both of our passports. Little did I notice they did not stamp mine. So that's apparently a big deal, everybody. So when you go somewhere, make sure you stamp. I had to go and beg them because you're not allowed to leave the country without a stamp. Oh, it was wow. a... I feel like I've not gotten stamped before. Okay, now I'm really going to be in in Colombia. Okay, you gotta make sure you get your stamp. Gotta get the (laughs) the stamp stamp. Okay, good to know. When is your podcast launching? I think we're going to do like a summer season, and we'll see how it goes. Hopefully, you know, semester's done. Sex, drugs, and science. Amazing. I'm excited about it. And the name is awesome. I'm just hopeful actually that we can get an episode out by the next time you're in, is it Uganda and you're stuck in traffic. That is now my number one goal to give you some good like traffic, um, traffic listening. I I tell you, I actually had, had such a good mood no resentment for traffic. Yeah. And now I listen to it when I'm in walking in airplanes. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I just listen to the podcast now. Yeah, me too. All the time. I and started I, listening on my commute in Boston, which was not a five-hour commute, but it was over an hour each way. And yeah. Yeah, um, it's amazing. I'm so yeah. excited. So thank you so much. And I'm wishing you a wonderful evening. I don't know if you have a replacement for sex education yet, but I'd recommend Shits Creek okay. or, or Pose if you haven't made it through all the poses yet. No, I haven't made it through the poses. Okay, that's a real pro tip. You know, I did watch AJ and the Queen and now I'm like, I have this like total desire to go like on an RV road trip around the I country. It. Oh, okay. So it's RuPaul's show. But here's the thing. My, my personal road trip won't have... RuPaul on my <laughs> on my RV, so it won't Not be yet, as fabulous. So. You don't know that it okay. could. It could. Okay. That's he, right. That's could come on up. your sex, drugs, and science. <laughs> yes, totally. And like road trip around RuPaul. If you're listening to this, we please would come on my RV or please come on our podcast and then our RV trip. Yes, in Hawaii. Yes. <laughs> Alaska and Hawaii. (laughs) So thank you again, Dr. Valerie Earnshaw. You will be able to find a link to her lab and her research. I'll provide all of those um, connections. And then also her, her new podcast. Maybe you'll come on again to this podcast when you're in the middle of launching yours. Give us some updates. I'd love to. And can't wait to have you over at Sex, Drugs, and Science. (laughs) Thank you so much. Okay, thank you, Dr. Loki. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Loki. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. If you want to listen, whatever I tell you, Mm-hmm.